Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Adi Eingar. Hello. Alan Weimar. That's me. And Sasha Wolf. That's me. We know, don't have a special guest this week, so it's just a cozy panelist episode with the three of us. And we are going to talk about promises of the beam. So what are things which people talk about the beam does great and how that holds up in reality. And I think one big talking point before we hit the record button was resiliency, right? Like a lot of the blog posts and material and whatever out there talk about how resilient the beam is. And I think I already heard from, from what you said before, Ali and, and Alan, that like the, the reality and the truth is a bit more complex than just everything is resilient, right? So why don't you tell us a bit about your experience with that, Alan? Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. I should have known that you're going to point this to me. Yeah, I mean, out of the box, I think the resiliency of the beam is already quite good. And most infrastructure is kind of okay. I think some things that I personally experienced in my life is like for some weird reason, my AWS RDS instance will just randomly get rebooted or just lose connection. So it's good that it'll just automatically try to reconnect and things just kind of keep chugging along. Otherwise, what I actually have run into consistently for a while was I was integrating with Strava for a client of mine. And the way Strava can work is that they can send you a webhook and say, hey, this guy, he, uh, he did something. He did some kind of activity. And you would say, okay, so tell me about this activity. And then it would just give me a 500 error. And uh, I, I took this project over from another guy. So that was never built into it. And we found out later on that we're just not getting enough activities, right? And so once we found out the problem, we just basically had to build in a retry mechanism. And it worked quite nice. And actually, we, we built it with a gen server and using TAS, uh, with, uh, task uh, async note link. And it just worked. And we, what we do is every time it failed, then we would just, okay, double the time, double the waiting time. And until we inevitably upgraded the system and had to reboot it anyways, we didn't do hot code reloads. We just, you know, did the old-fashioned style of on EC2 and just turn it off, turn it back on. But yeah, it was that that worked. And uh, I was quite happy with it because, yeah, it, it worked so much that we never had to worry about it. And eventually we would see the data would be there. So that's kind of a really good example of resiliency. And uh, I think a lot of systems could use something like that because you can't depend on third-party services. So that's that's my experience. Yeah, I mean, if, if you depend on them, you're going to get a brutal wake-up call as soon as <laughs> they have an issue of their own, right? Yeah, we, we kind of had like a similar experience at my current job is where we basically, we are switching payment providers and now we are synchronizing some historic data and we're doing that in like a part of a system which is handling payments. And it seems that like occasionally some 
part of that synchronization fails because they have some validation rules in place which are not that super well documented and then like one piece of data where it gets to like a certain event can get synchronized but because that event that then doesn't get consumed it like crashes and reboots and gets the event again and tries again and crashes and reboots and then at some point the whole application goes down which is I think also like highlights another little detail. Like we, we, there is this whole philosophy of let it crash and let something restart again. But the problem is not necessarily solved at that point, especially if you have like some, maybe some kind of retry mechanism or some kind of like acknowledgement mechanism where you say, okay, I only remove a message from the queue when I actually acknowledged it being successfully handled. And But if that particular message produces an error, then yeah, well, Great, you get it restarted by the supervision tree, but then it crashes again. And I mean, what, what for example, OTB and Erlang uh, do there when supervisors is they have like this restart limit. So if like a process crashes repeatedly very quickly in a short amount of time, I think the default is five times in 30 seconds, then the supervisor itself crashes. And then that gets restarted by the supervisor from it. But yet again, same thing happens. So at some point, your whole application can actually crash. So yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk about resiliency and there's a lot of talk about, okay, this system is super stable, but you still have to do some work. It, it's not free lunch, as people like to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it is confusing because, you know, like when people say like beam, like let it crash, it's resilient. Beam is resilient, but that doesn't mean your Phoenix or electron application is resilient, right? Like, yeah, exactly. The processes and supervision trees resilient doesn't mean that not even external API, like your dependencies. You never, you don't even know. Like, I mean, um, shell commands, uh, whatever you're using, they they might be the source of failure within the scope of that process, right? And I think that's another thing. Like Elixir, what, what are the solutions for the caching and external dependencies? Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, external dependencies is like caching, right? And that also Elixir makes so easy to put in place. Just spinning up a process or ETS to like store results of an API in case of a failure. It, it's very simple and easy. Just a matter of minutes uh, to put in the put in the supervision tree and like store results. So you that, have to be I careful guess, too. You don't want to just spin up a process willy-nilly, right? You want to make sure that you put that into the supervision tree. Exactly. Yep. Sorry to cut you off, but I think that's really super important because yeah. people will just spin up processes, right? Totally, yeah. Like a long-term process that stores state outside of the context of a request needs to be in the supervision tree for sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you have processes which actually do store state, I mean, that's something that Beam is, is pretty good at. Like, It's a pretty useful capability, but it also goes against some of the wisdom out there with like trend, uh, not transient systems, like stateless systems, right? Because then by definition, it is kind of stateful. And then again, like if you let it crash, well, that state is by definition lost, which might be okay or it might not be okay. So yeah, again, no no, no free lunch. I, I think um, <laughs> I think that's something we, we as a community also have to be honest about that. Like, yes, uh, like, I mean, this, these primitives are there and they are super powerful, but you still have to well use your brain to use them properly so do you have any fun little juicy stories of how maybe like some of these primitives um, in your career kind of soured your day or something <laughs> application for me like, like i said this whole thing with like with the with the synchronization of data to this external payment provider that brought down our whole payment service like everything because it kept patching repeatedly and that's no bueno <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, like, I mean, suddenly people can no longer, the payments no longer get processed on our side. And that's like, it's not fun stuff. Yes, yeah, it's just a half an hour thing. But then again, like, basically, where the, where like the, the, the properties of Beam and, and, and OTP kind of worked against us in this particular scenario, which 
Yeah, I think one of the stories I have is like, again, this was like one of the earlier Elixir projects we worked on. Just we, you know, when you create this, when you create a project that you want to scale up in terms of how much data it's processing and all that stuff, you, you start with this ability to create spin process like it's nothing. <laughs> They're like, ah, I can just spin processes. Okay, easily do make this particular operation parallel, right? As, as long as I design it for concurrency, great. Then the first thing you run into is like, okay, well, spinning process up to a point is okay. But after that, you know, it's it might crash the whole application. That's the first thing we'll run into. The other thing that I wasn't really expecting at that point, at, and now it's obvious to me, is that, okay, if you have a lot of data in your primary process, you spin up a process in the same context, you're copying that data, right? And that's using up so much memory. So even though you can spin up thousands of processes, you might not have enough memory to spin up thousands of processes. It might crash the whole thing. And there is no way to recover from that. So that's another, like, it's not it's not quite like the letter crash philosophy, but I guess it kind of is. It's You can't just let things like, you can't just spin process and let things crash because again, you lose what you were doing. And at times it's very expensive to recover that or impossible. I've had an issue where I was parsing a, sh- I was, okay, I'll just say it because I'll be, I'm going to be like Sasha, a shit ton of XML. And yes, uh, <laughs> embrace. We can vote it out. I, uh, well, I, I'm trying to be PC, but you know, I'll be uh, SW, Sasha Wolf. But, yeah, I mean, I I was parsing XML with Elixir, and I got had, I think I took like four gigs of of RAM, which ridiculous, right? It's crazy. And actually, each one was processing in a separate in a separate process each file. But for some weird reason, that the the RAM was still super high. I think it was also super slow too. I think that was also part of the issue. And yeah, it was a little bit embarrassing because I was like, oh, this is gonna be efficient. And I was talking to this PHP guy. It's gonna be efficient. It's gonna be great. You know, you're gonna be loving it. And the guy replied, actually, we used to have a product line called Elixir and it sold like shit. So we threw it away. So like everything was against me. And then I had this resource hog, like it killed all of my chances of really showing off the power of Elixir. So yeah, like the, the, the solution for those problems for, that I at least resort to is like putting that shared context in a separate process that you can access, like a simple agent. So you don't have to copy it. Yes, it's a little bit more expensive to access it, but enterprise communication in Elixir is like, very inexpensive. So I think that solved the problem. But yeah, it's something you're, you're right. It's something we do take for granted. We're like, oh, it'll work. And then we realize, oh, no, everything is copied. <laughs> and I think one big thing is that like every message passing between processes is basically always copying. There are some exceptions to this rule. Like if you have some big binaries, like really big string by data, for example, then the beam does some optimizations around that where it actually then like has kind of do pointers to it, references. But that's in general, if you do message passing between processes, then things are going to get copied. You can count right, but at least it'll be limited to the scope of what you're asking. Yeah, if you're doing it true. through message processing instead of spinning up a child. Yep. That's true. I just remember that, like, I think Bruce talked about this in his book that he said, like, if you have a, like a, a shit ton of data, that actually a better method is actually just to send the function to the process rather than sending the data, which is quite interesting. I I've never really. Is, I mean, it, it probably it could be smaller. It depends on how big your data is, right? But it's probably not. what the agents are doing, right? Because I mean, when you when you have an agent and you say, "Hey, please do an update here on this," like then you have like a function you give it. I guess Makes sense. not quite right. What Alan is saying that if process A, the parent process has all the data, right? You want to run a task concurrently. You can define that as part of the 
client interface or the parent process and send the invocation of that to a child process, right? So it's still making things concurrent, but your data is still centralized. So yeah, I, I think you, you still all your data is still in that parent process without copying it to the. I would I'm not going to use a child process word because it's on a child technically it's a process B, right? And it's just an RPC invocation, and process B can ask process A for data. That's a very interesting solution actually. That's kind of similar to putting your data in a central place. Yeah, I remember in the in his book about designing OTP systems that he recommended that in case you have really a, a shit ton of data, you would do it like that. Yeah, the only problem is like if if you send it a f- function, the function ideally be nice if it's defined in the the process, the child process itself, right? If yeah, so I also have to like give it like an interface to get data from the parent process. That's why I prefer having an agent that has data because then the interface is already defined. I think another tidbit is like. I think we already touched on that in a previous episode at some point. It's like also this whole talk about how you how you can easily spin up processes, right? And then they can do work for you. And then in reality, like it's <laughs> the real story is like a little bit more complex because as you already said, Adi, like processes should be supervised because I mean, you in theory, like nothing stops you from spawning this process which is not supervised, but then it's also not going to be shut down correctly. Like it's going to, it's going to, your, your, your uh, OTP process, process is probably going to be killed brutally at some point. I'm not sure like if it actually shuts down, if you still have a process running somewhere or if it, what exactly happens there, but yeah, you, you lose shutdown ability um, and it's going to live around forever potentially, even if like maybe a particular supervisor gets killed or whatever. And then again, I mean, I, I remember that I've have very often when I, I have written like boilerplate code with like tasks and task supervisors, when I actually say, okay, now I actually have this big list of things and I want to actually run concurrently through it and I want to spawn a process for each every, uh, for each single item, but I still want to make sure that they're supervised, but then you need to go through task supervisor. And there's actually some boilerplate there you need to write, like because I mean, the task in theory can then crash and return an error uh, or it completes successfully, which, which returns an okay tuple, but your operation you want to run as, uh, concurrently also returns an okay tuple potentially. So you have to unwrap this double okay tuple. And like all of that is like, it's not a big bunch of code, but it's like, I don't know, like 30 lines, something like that, or 30, 40 lines you have to write. And uh, I have written that probably, I don't know, five to 10 times at this point, like this task supervisor boilerplate. And yet again, like no no free lunch there. Like I, you still have to jump through some hoops to get that. Right. that I mean, after that, it works nicely, but the, the standard library is actually also not super helpful in that regard because it, like, it, you have this task async stream function, which kind of says, yeah, you can just use me. But then again, you don't hit, you have not supervised tasks. So, eh. in my experience, I feel like it's if you're supervising tasks, they're doing something wrong. If generally, I like to have the process that's spinning up the tasks that should be supervised and tasks should have like simple small tasks that are assigned to them and then you can use async stream with max and currency right but the likelihood of failure of a, a task and the cost of failure of a task should be low and if it does fail the overall process that's spinning up the tasks can be uh, if it's part of the supervision tree that can you know spin the tasks again i think that is easier to also like manage and you can st- you still have the option of spinning up tasks for like you know small tasks. Oh my god, that was a terrible sentence. 
<laughs> I get what you're saying. I maybe that's a maybe maybe it's cargo culting, but um, I I've been always then leaning towards okay visa processes which I spawn off, and yes, they might at most run sixty seconds, but still I want to get them supervised so they go through the usual shutdown procedure. And I think the documentation also suggests that like it's better to use like a super task supervisor if you actually are spawning a whole bunch of them re regularly. So. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Like, what is the amount of like what? How much processes have you guys actually ever run at one time? Like, what's the most amount you guys ever done? Obviously, your whole system's like full of it. But I'm just kind of curious about knowingly at one point spreading out so many processes. Explicitly, it was like uh, we spun at a time over a million. I remember on one machine. What the um, hell are you that doing was a million processes. What were you doing with a million processes? It was actually the same app that I was mentioning earlier, uh, but we just deployed it on like a. One of those, you know, hundred GB machines and and go on Google Cloud with a lot of RAM because we didn't want to horizontally scale it. <laughs> but yeah, that that was I, I think the number was a million. And from from what I remember, it might have even gone to like three or four million. But uh, we were like just start off, we're testing it up to a million, and it it did it like with no problem. If we have if if you have enough RAM, Elixir is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what I would do with a million processes. I thought I was going to beat you guys with just a few hundred, but I've been uh, beaten by a million. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I don't think I have ever spawned like deliberately a whole bunch of processes. Like, I mean, beyond the task story I just told you, and that was for some concurrent HTTP requests we wanted to shoot off to to like some service for like each item in the list, right? And I actually wanted to collect the results for each for each request, and that 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 was the <laughs> the most. But then we are talking about I don't know that that was for like maybe 40 items, which if you do it sequentially would still be hella slow, right? But nothing nothing even close <laughs> to remotely close to like hundreds or millions. So yeah, I mean, of course, you we all have our Phoenix applications and those spawn a whole bunch of processes, but that's like not really my code. So I, I don't feel that's, that's kind of what you were going for here. If you look at the observer, when you compile Elixir itself, there's like, Man, I think like eight or nine hundred processes that I spawn. So Elixir gets com compiled concurrently, right? Because Elixir underscore com Elixir underscore modules is a module that stores all the modules that are compiled, right? Like the compilation of Elixir is very process driven. So I, I remember the observer was showing like eight or nine hundred processes that was spawned as Elixir is compiling. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I do know that Elixir compiles everything in parallel, which is pretty pretty crazy. But sadly, it has to wait on a lot, of, a lot of other dependencies, so you don't really get massive gains necessarily. Although they have been working quite a bit on that, right? Like, I mean, the, like one big thing they have been working on with compilation speed is that like hard compile time dependencies basically are now determined a bit smarter. So that, like, for example, in the past, each alias was, I think, a, a compile time dependency, and now it is no longer. So the compiler can actually compile more things in parallel. Oh wow! I don't know that. That's very I cool. I think it was one point. Fifteen? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know alias was a compiled dependency because uh, you could but, alias anything and it just would not break, right? So I only thought require and imports were. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it was that. I, I don't remember the details, but they, I think they did some some smart things there that they like things. Gotcha. Uh, also, like inside of, for example, like Phoenix code base where they did a replace the whole bunch of like imports with aliases. You can actually see it in your code. I mean, in the past, the routes helper used to be imported, right? Right. And now they yeah. are aliased specifically good, for this reason. Good call, right. 
very good point. So yeah, there's, there's a whole whole bunch of optimization going into that. There's been a pretty big evolution in how you write your code because I remember like using use was like, oh yeah, use use everywhere. I think it was something when I first started Elixir, I think we use this quite use quite a lot. There was a lot of like compile time stuff that was being used, but then now it's like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Things have changed quite a bit last uh, couple of releases. So you used to use use a lot, but now you no longer should use use? Something like that. Like you, if you notice, <laughs> if you look at libraries nowadays, like you look at like Elixir and stuff, like the use stuff is really down quite a bit. The quoting I was mostly making is... a joke, man. Uh, <laughs> in Phoenix, Ger- German humor. Sorry, uh, German humor. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying, Adi. <laughs> From what I, what I see, at least they've increased it in Phoenix. The uh, using macros have gotten bigger, and they. I mean, th- there is no model, I guess, since like the one point two, but uh, they they still have the use ecto schema. Uh, but the the web thing that get, that gets generated in Phoenix that's only getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, I think the alias the import to alias something I've noticed and I didn't think about it until Sasha mentioned it. But yeah, I just don't see a way around use. You know, if uh, the the DSL will change a lot, I just don't see a way around it. It's not like way around it. It's just like some people just kept using use all the time. Like if you were going to import like. I don't know, one or two files, they rather you just import them directly rather than saying, right. you know, make a new use. I, I'm trying to remember, like, this is quite some time ago. I just remember, like, that was one of the things that they're trying to promote because, yeah, the more macros you use, then the more longer your compilation will be. And then you people will be right. bitching about how slow everything takes to compile, <laughs> which is definitely yeah. uh, the last guest I think we had on. He, like, I asked him to... Because he said everything in Elixir was great, which of course is good, but it's just not true, right? Everything has a, has some negatives. And finally, he was like, you know what? Here's a big negative. Compiling Elixir is just too damn slow, which it is. It's really ridiculously slow. But the nice part is that once you compile it the first time, compiling it later on is much faster, right? Because you don't have all those dependencies you got to deal with. You know what's slow? Running dialyzer for the first time. Oh. <laughs> But to, to get back to like we, we kind of left on a tangent here, which is I think fine. But to get back to like where we started off with like the promises of Beam, and and we already talked about like spawning processes to do some work, and like having state in processes. And I think like one important little tidbit here is I think in the past a lot of people thought like, hey, with Elixir and OTP, we don't need job queues anymore, right? Like we can we can just spawn off processes and they do the the tasks and then they're done. But yeah, why, why, why that's like technically true. The thing you kind of forget there and like you automatically get as a trade off is if like when your like your application crashes for whatever reason, right? Like node goes down, a virtual machine, I don't know, burns down or like the physical machine burns down as like recent a while ago happened in France in this data center, right? Uh, then the whatever job this process was doing is gone and arguably in a job queue that's probably not what you want which i think is like one big reason why oban for example is like a library has been gotten so popular because it gives you some of these guarantees back like okay if my process crashes for whatever reason it can pick up like this work again and this work is not just gonna go poof but speaking of that 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 mindset's also changed too because i used to remember hearing all the time like oh why do i need a database like, I forgot, somebody said this before, like a long time ago, like the, the way Erlang works is like, you need to handle resiliencies. So why would you even consider a database? You got ETS and DETS. I know, obviously, using Postgres is much better, but I just remember that that was a, the, the talk around town was to say, hey, uh, why do I need a database? Can I just store it in memory and, and maybe hot code reload, etc.? There was some talk about that for some time, but now that, that talk has gone down quite a bit, and that's why I think Open has definitely been the talk of the town. 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, the cost of recovering the state itself is very high. If, if you're storing a lot of uh, data in state and you try to recover after a crash, that's a lot. It's not going to be like, boom, right away, right? And I think I think the, I wanted to think that way, Alan. <laughs> in like 2017, I tried to build applications that way, but then it just like, it's, it's just not 12 factor, right? 12 factor exists for a reason. Like you need your configurations, your data to exist outside of your application's uh, life cycle. Um, that includes job queues and everything. It's just uh, the way to build apps in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to see a production app in Elixir that is built the way some people claim Elixir apps should be built. I, I'm yet to see one. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Just for like everybody, I was not heard of a 12, 12 factors that prefers to like the 12 factor app guidelines from Heroku. You should totally check out and we're going to put the show. Sorry, my bad. There's actually like some real wisdom in there. Yeah, but, but, but agreed. I mean, it, it makes sense again. Yeah. When, when you think about where, where Elixir slash Erlang actually came, comes from, right? Like a very more embedded, big embedded scenario where then again, you, you don't really probably arguably have this huge demand for like persistent long-term state so yet yeah, i can see why, why why a lot of the primitives are there and that can help you keep state around in an ephemeral way but to be honest i i, I wouldn't want to build a database like with dats i mean you, you can yes sure but if it's anything beyond like an append only scenario like th thanks no no thanks yeah <laughs> the cost of managing that is also hard right like between two deploys between two releases you don't know if the state and the structure of the state is compatible that's why we have migrations like it's it's I try, believe me, I tried a lot in 2017 to build an app that way. I just couldn't. It's it's just not sustainable and realistic. Yeah, I, I, I get that completely. I never tried it myself, but I never was mad enough to try it. Say that. <laughs> I had to. I had to. I saw, I saw Sasha Yurik's slide, you know, like, oh, in Elixir, everything is Elixir. Everything is Elixir, right? Like, Rails use Redis for this, Postgres for this. And Sasha Yurik said, oh, elixir everything is elixir i'm like you know what let me let me build a side project with that just no please don't do that it's too hard <laughs> yeah and i mean even if you then say hey dats which is and to give context ets is this key value storage built into erlang right and dets is like i thought what is the what is the d standing for disk disk right because like it basically it's not just in memory but it's right into a file on disk and I mean, the story doesn't end there, right? Like, just because you write to a file, like, what do you do with a file? <laughs> I mean, it also has, if you want to actually keep it around, then you have right. to like, make sure that, that it's kept around. If, for example, if you're using like a compact container-based deployment, then well, you better mount some persistent volume into that. And so... It also doesn't store how you initialize your database in debts unless you explicitly ask it to. So if you created indexes, if you created like uh, support tables for that debts database, it's not going to be there unless you explicitly say that it's it's not meant for 
it's not meant for this. I can rant about this for hours. I spent like months trying to build that way. And I think one one important tidbit is also that even if you decide like to to, to go down that route and, and and keep everything in memory and like I don't know like keep things in your processes, you still have to consider like or we, or we say okay now my process might crash but it can recover, it can boot again. And then I mean what, what OTP and Erlang basically give you is they like, say okay like you know start in a known good state and that known good state is actually like the state the process first booted up into right and that is not necessarily what you want and this do remember very vividly that we had this we had the project at work uh, my previous job where we kept some arguably ephemeral data in like a process which was like about basically keeping like some connection information on, on users accessing the system and while that information was like ephemeral so like if everybody like it was ephemeral in the sense of like people used it for like a session, maybe like, a, I don't know, an hour, and then they left again, then it could be safely deleted. But in that time, if a process actually crashed for something, we would really would have liked to like keep it around because if we didn't, that meant like this connection, for example. So if like the service was got restarted in that time because we deployed a new version, you would automatically disconnect everybody who was connected to that system at that point. So did not 100% neatly mapped to this notion of like ephemeral state. And then you get a whole other shebang of complexity because if you actually say, okay, I want to restart this process, but I want to like maybe offload my state to somewhere else and reload it from there. Like I, I'm not aware of any built-in solution for that. So yeah, like you, you have this very specific set of behaviors in OTP, which are super useful in a quite a wide variety of circumstances and like really help you focus on most of the time on what you actually want to focus on, on your like business core application, core logic, until you don't have to consider restarts and other kind of things, at least not to the degree you have to in some other technologies. But then again, if you have like want to step out of, outside of that and have like some, maybe some slight difference, uh, different requirements, then you're again left on your own. And I think there's probably no, no technology out there which which does the job 100% each and every time, right? You're always going to have to build some glue, some boilerplate. There's always going to be this, this little thing which is like slightly different in your case. For sure. I don't know, have, have any of you two like ever built like a system where basically you could rehydrate a process? from like a persisted state because I actually did some Googling on that. And I mean, it's apparently not something people do that often. <laughs> I, 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 I tried building that without any any backup. I think I think Amnesia made it very easy because it can also be dispatched and the its query language is very, um, at least more extendable than its, I think. But yeah, I think Amnesia being the engine of storage of data is how I did that. But again, it's still not something I'd recommend. <laughs> and then you get other idiosyncrasies, right? Because Amnesia doesn't really handle net splits or something like that, like where you have, like if, if your data, data diverges in two sets of nodes because they can't communicate for whatever reason, then eh, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's like for entire beam. That's true, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, I, I'm repeating myself very often on this on this uh, idiom, but no free lunch. No free lunch. But to, like, to, to break a bone here for, for being, I mean, while we've been bashing a lot of the things right now, like, like maybe like some of the promises break down at the end of the day, I would still choose the beam over a lot of other technologies out oh, there yeah. when it comes to building concurrent systems, which I mean, let's face it, most backend server side 
pieces of software are concurrent systems. It's still, in my opinion, the best tool out there for a lot of the, the problems we're facing on that particular front today. So yeah, that's just, I'm just going to put that out there. Like I, I still love this, this thing to death. But, I mean, I remember very distinctly having one um, boss two years ago, which was already in the industry for like 20 years. And he always said like, yeah, there are two types of technologies, um, those that people hate and those that nobody uses. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of proof to that. <laughs> nice. Oh, oh, it reminds me of Haskell. <laughs> but yeah, I totally agree with you, Sasha, on, on Beam. I, w- I would pick Beam for, I mean, or Elixir for not even like like a concurrent project. It, it, it's, it's just very, not because I know Elixir, but I just feel like over the last few years in diff- across different companies, I feel like I have seen the proof that it's very easy to onboard people in Elixir. Um, even new engineers compared to other languages and very easy for them to get started and feel empowered because with the Rails, for example, on the flip side, like there's so much more hand-waving, uh, more magic going on than Elixir and Phoenix. And like by keeping some of the modules there and sort of hiding it, like empowers people to read read the code once they're comfortable. So yeah, not even for like Beam, concurrent, resilient, resilient system, just like simple web applications, I would still pick Elixir. In fact, I was like telling Sasha and Alan before the episode started that this last week, I convinced two early stage startups to use Elixir. And I was super happy about that. I mean, like I said, like even web applications arguably are concurrent systems, even though we don't really think about them that way, I guess. That was what, was what I was getting at. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, if I, if I just think about having like a Node app, and I don't want to bash Node here, like just by default, but if I have a Node app, like Node is still the single process thing, right? Like, I mean, it has this event loop, which kind of kind of fakes concurrency, <laughs> which like non-blocking our own everything. But if you block this main process, then yeah, well, everything is blocked, and that's just not something which which, which can happen that easily on the beam. Like I mean, in theory, you can still build like an, an, an infinite loop, like an infinite recursion or whatever. And yes, that's going to have like a uh, it's going to have an impact, but the impact is going to be so small on the overall system it might be like a tiny bit slower now, and that that's about it. Which is to be honest, like a quality I, I really, really value a lot. It's like less the, foot guns. The uh, the presentation that Sasha did basically reminds me of that, right? Where he, I think he blocked up one of the schedulers for the entire time. Yeah, you mean Sasha Yurek's talk on on the yeah. soul of Erling and Elixir, right? Like, yeah, in this exactly. talk he literally does that. He like basically puts a, a process into like an infinite loop and no measurable impact on on the system's speed uh, in any way. Yeah, and he, he made it quite resilient too. I think there was some crashing and restarting also happening too, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I showed that video to a JavaScript fanboy and he's like, wow, this is fantastic. But like, why is nobody using Elixir then if it's so great? In terms of like, <laughs> if you compare it with like JavaScript, right? I'm like, well, sometimes the right thing is not always done by everybody. You know, I don't know how to, I don't well, even know how pe- to even reply to that kind of question. People mm-hmm. are using it. It's it's new. Apple just picked it as a language they're going to use for their reducing their environmental impact. They hired, uh, you know, one of the Elixir, two of Elixir core team people. Pepsi has been using it for a while. So, uh, a lot of big companies are using it. Like it's, I mean, compared to other technologies, like but Rust is an ex- uh, Rust, Rust is an exception. Besides Rust, like Elixir is doing really good amongst the languages that came out this last decade. There's also this principle of good enough. If you've heard of that before. Which basically it's like it says that it's like a rule in software and system design, which says that consumers and people interface using with that kind of area that they, they are gonna pick software which is good enough, but not necessarily the software which is like really 
better and yeah. greater and we might be more suited to a problem. But at the end of the day, like the other things are good enough. And I think that applies to a lot of um, solutions out there. Like, I mean, PHP and Java and JavaScript, like they all get the job done, right? Like they get the job done. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, but there's a lot of big systems out there running on them. I mean, you might have to jump through a bit more hoops on some of these platforms, but they get the job done. And then again, <laughs> I mean, we are sitting kind of in our ivory tower here and saying like, oh, Elixir is so great and solving all of these problems. But yes, they, they, they arguably, if you look on it, like on paper, that's true. But at the end of the day, question is, if like big picture corporate bottom lines, does that really matter that much, right? So yeah, that's where we end up. Like I said, Elixir is a, is a technology and the Beam especially, which solves certain problems really, really well. But a lot of other technologies also solve them. Maybe not as great, maybe not as well, maybe not as, as comfortable for the developers, but they do solve them and that's good enough. And also, I mean, if, if you want to go into nitty-gritty of like Elixir and JavaScript, I mean, JavaScript just has the advantage of platform exclusivity, right? I mean, <laughs> even to this day, WebAssembly is not quite there yet. If you want to build like a complex web app, you probably will have to reach for JavaScript. And that, that is why JavaScript became popular, not because JavaScript is such an awesome language. And I mean, then then it makes sense. Like, well, I, I I still remember when I got into backend development, I was mostly uh, doing my studies and I was learning like JavaScript for like some super primitive web browser based things, right? Like first year CS student kind of things, you know? Like button and then a lot, a lot pops up. Oh, and then I was thinking, okay, wait, can I can I use this language? I know kind of know somewhat decently. Can I also use it for soft backend software development because I know it. I don't want to learn something something else, right? And then I discovered Node that was in beta back then. I was like, yeah, great, I can use this for like I can use the same language for front end and back end, and like I don't have to learn something new. And that is also like for me that was a huge selling point. I was super happy about that. And I think a lot of people out there are too. Like we, we kind of forget how much effort it yep. can be to get into these into these whole areas. A lot of, I mean, just just earlier, Adi, you mentioned twelve factor. Just threw it out there as if it's common knowledge, but for a lot of people, it probably is not common knowledge. A lot of the things which are in there, and it's kind of hard to, to when you when you've been in this industry for like years to get back to this beginner mindset that like yes, Elixir might be super useful and super uh, great, but I mean, if 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 I as a beginner have to come here and like I have to learn JavaScript for my front end stuff and I have to learn HTML and CSS and then I also supposedly have to learn Elixir and probably also a bit of Postgres, right? And <laughs> like, that's a hard sell. That's just a normal day for me. Always learning some crazy shit I have to do all the time. Yeah, I mean, that, that's... Just, just picking up some Blazor recently. That was a disaster. I'm sticking with uh, Live View from now on. Yeah, and, and, and Petal, right? Yeah, sticking with a Petal stick. That's under wraps. <laughs> some, something with a flower. Yeah, yeah. Something's going on with Petals. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I agree. And actually, I feel like stuff is stuff is both getting more complicated, but also more easy too. I'm kind of thinking back to what you said about the pedal stack, right? What I like about pedal stack that's actually pretty cool is like instead of having to actually write JavaScript, now you just write some initialization code, like one two lines, and then you just annotate your HTML with some stuff. So what, much easier now. You want to explain what the pedal stack is for maybe somebody who doesn't know? If you don't know what's pedal stack, I don't know how you can listen to this podcast. It's been out there for a while, but okay. So pedal stands. Hey, for, maybe uh, it's their first episode. Come on, Alan. Okay, okay, fine. I'll try not to be so so nasty. But uh, okay, so P is for Phoenix, E is for Elixir, T is for Tailwind, A is for Alpine, L is for Live View. So most of that stuff's going to be in Elixir, right? So Phoenix, Elixir, obviously, and uh, Live View are all Elixir. Phoenix-based stuff, which you guys probably all know or should know about. Uh, but the, the new stuff would be T for Tailwind, right? So Tailwind is basically a utility-first CSS 
kind of system. It's, it's really quite different than anything else. Maybe you guys are kind of used to bootstrap way where it's like you have all these kind of custom built components. But the problem is like every time you have these custom built components, well, guess what? You have to actually usually override the styles. So you're like, okay, cool. Let's use bootstrap because it has, you know, uh, modal and all these other accordion and everything else. Well, that's nice, but your branding doesn't really match with what Bootstrap has. So you're going to have to spend a lot of your time kind of overriding all that stuff. And then it's like, oh, guess what? New version of Bootstrap came out. Now you have to completely rewrite everything. Like when you went from like, uh, when they when they brought in Flex, right? They had to rewrite all the classes, everything that that was horrible. But yeah, with Tailwind, I mean, like I, I did a couple of upgrades. It's pretty straightforward, like a couple of classes I had to rename and that was about it. But with the with the cool way that this one works is that you're basically taking Lego pieces the entire time and kind of building up all of your stuff. It gets a little bit weird because like you're literally like every single thing you're annotating with lots and lots of CSS classes. But at the same time, it makes it much, much easier to work with because you're like, wait a minute, this has got too much margin. Let me change the margin from M4 down to M2, right? And it makes things a lot easier but you could also still kind of like, if you're going to reuse stuff, there's ways around it. Like you can make a component, like uh, what's it? Phoenix also has that that component. Was it called the live component or is there something else? I forgot the name. Uh, yeah, live component, component. I think, but I think there's, I a, mean, new, there's it, a new it, component Phoenix for now us, has, right? Yeah, that's true, yeah. Across. You can use the cross, right? So you can make a component, you can use that one across, or you can also consider to actually just make a class. And you could take all those classes that you use from from, uh, from Tailwind, you can make a separate class using this apply directive. So, but I mean, overall, it makes life much easier. And if you're using LiveView, you probably don't really like to use JavaScript. And so you may want to actually have some, a little bit more kind of customized and more sophisticated UIs. So you can actually just add in some LiveView, uh, sorry, some Alpine JS annotations. Alpine JS is actually written by this guy named Caleb for his Livewire framework, which I think you guys know this story already, right? Yeah, Livewire is like the, the PHP equivalent of LiveView, right? Yeah, but the weird part is I, I was listening back to the Thinking Alexa podcast recently. And what's quite interesting is that they actually don't use a WebSocket. They use, not polling, what is it? What is polling. The, XML. No, there's another one. So XML-based... So we're Ajax. They actually use Ajax for everything, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's really weird because they, what they actually do is they, if I understand correctly, the way Livewire works is like there's actually state on both the back end and the front end. It's very weird. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. How would it's you use ve- Ajax without polling, though, to get re- real-time update? Well, you don't get real-time updates. Okay. You actually have to you actually have to rely on something like Pusher, right? So unless something's changed, you actually have to rely on a service like Pusher to get a real-time update. So you use, you'd integrate with Pusher and Pusher would say, hey, uh, there's an update. Why don't you do a poll? Something like that. Hmm. Okay. But in any case, like literally there's, there's, there's state on the front end and state on the back end. And so that's why Alpine works with this is that you would do like, you know, some state is fine to be on the front end, right? So like if you're going to be opening and closing an accordion, you don't really need the back end to do that, right? That should be something that's, uh, to me, it should be strictly on the front end. And so that's where Alpine can come into play. But also now, uh, LiveView also has something new, right? Uh, JS Hook, I think. Yeah. Which is a way of doing stuff like this. Yep. It's really uh, super interesting. So it's less and less need for Alpine these days. Yeah. The the guy in me who appreciates a good name likes the name Pedal Stack, but the engineer in me says Phoenix, Elixir, and Tailwind. Uh, I'm not Tailwind, LiveView. You can just say LiveView, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> they can just be tall stack, right? But another guy in me who likes names, uh, we like I use I use Boma instead of Tailwind because Tailwind was a lot of effort to set up, and Boma was like easy enough. And I like to call it Pebble Stack. Um, <laughs> enough enough naming for today. Yeah, yeah, Boma. Like I've heard good things about it. Like, but I've also heard 
it's not so nice. I don't know. Like I, I've, I've seen somebody, I was actually helping somebody with, that was using Bulma. I quite like Tailwind by itself, but, but what is, um, what is so interesting about uh, Bulma compared to Tailwind? Yeah, I think it's very flexible, but still comes with like a lot of classes that, you know, it's like ready, ready to use. Tailwind takes a lot of upfront, you know, investment, um, to build, you know, your styles and stuff. And, uh, Bulma, not as much. It, yeah. Again, as you, as we start becoming more, you know, we're still at early stage at my company. As we start like adding more of a brand and like adding more things, you know, uh, Tailwind might be something we'll move to. But also, Bulma doesn't have JS. It's very lightweight. So, uh, yeah, we don't need any any um, NPM or any kind of management uh, system, uh, package management system. We can li- we just literally copied the min.js file. Very lightweight to manage. But the cool thing about the way Tailwind works is that they have a JIT. So what it actually will do is it'll it'll selectively add in or remove classes that you ne- that you're using or not using. But that, that's also, a very new can, thing, right? Isn't is that of Tailwind three or the Tailwind two version um, thing? I think it's fairly new. Yeah, the the I think the most fairly new part is that you can so like you could say like something like okay, like I said, like M four would be margin four, and every one every whole number is a quarter of a rem or m rem it should be i think so if you say margin 4 that means you got 2 rem right and what you can also do is like let's say that you actually wanted 48 pixels so what you can do is you can say m dash and then you can use square brackets and then you can write 48px and it will see that in your html and also sees this within your your hex files too if you like and it can see for, it can see that class and say oh i know you want margin and i know you want 48px as the value so it, when it goes ahead and actually creates that class for you. So literally, it's almost like really no good reason to start writing custom classes. There's sometimes you need mm. to, but honestly, not. I've, I've, I have a recent project where like, I mean, it's, I think I have like two or three classes I had to hand make for some reason. I have to go back to see why. But it was just, I think it was mostly out of like repeating myself, right? That I, I, I wanted to do it. Otherwise, like that, like that's the power of the jet is that not only can you add and remove classes, but you can also do that, which is like randomly make up classes and it just looks at it and knows what it is and creates it for you. Super awesome. And you also don't even need the package manager, right? Because they also have a custom, they have, you can use NPM or you could also use the, the standalone and they have the, they have a mixed package for it too. So, you know, the new, the new styles using that, that, oh. that ES build. So they also have a so you know ES build right? It's a new way right. of doing it. Mm-hmm. So they have a same ES build like package for Tailwind, and that one just pulls in the Tailwind binary that does everything for you. Interesting. It kind of sounds like you have like a little language all of your own with like Tailwind <laughs> to style things, like a like a language to style things. Like maybe maybe, maybe Tailwind you... is a is a way of life. You <laughs> have to drink the Kool Aid if you want to be in this cult. So is, is, it, is it like is it like tail, tailwind style sheets? Wait, I think I think there's something like that. Like the language to style things. I can't put my finger on it right now. But also too, like I I purposely I bought actually. So they have tailwindui.com. So tailwindcss.com is the actual website. You can get all the information about how you can configure it, everything else. But if you go to tailwindui.com, it's actually also owned by them. I went ahead and I paid the money because I, I want to support the project and they have a shit ton of really, really cool components. Yeah, yeah. So, I, that, that's the one thing I've actually been tempted about because they have yeah. like a yeah. really, really big library of really good components. And if I ever get to like really getting serious with building a web app again, I might actually sell all the money because I mean, it's not even that much. It's like a hundred bucks, something like that. 
So it's like not, not insanely yeah. priced. I think it's, I for me, like I said, I just want to support the project. I think what they're doing is awesome. So to me, it's just worth it. And uh, I got all three sections. There's there's marketing, application UI, and e-commerce. I think I got them all just because, yeah, I think they're all, I, no, I don't have this one actually. Okay, I lied. I don't have e-commerce. Maybe this is a new section. What, 280 bucks? Forget it, I'm not doing it. So you have a people that, that, that's the pedal stick. <laughs> kind of. oh, sorry, 30 bucks. 30 bucks upgrade. Okay, I'll, maybe nice. I'll do it. I might actually try out Tailwind, but uh, Sasha said Boma has been good enough. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's yeah. some proof to that. There is some proof to that. I've also contributed to Boma, so maybe Ooh. maybe I can make a contribution to Tailwind and then that'll give me motivation to try it out. I think you should give it a try at least and see how you feel. If Boma's for you, that's fine, right? I think the most important part is do what works for you, right? Being a Dragon Ball person too, you know, just um, had to use Boma. Any any uh, any Dragon Ball? Do you guys are you guys Dragon Ball fans or no? I can't say fan. Like I, I'm very aware of of manga and the anime. I've watched it when I was younger. I haven't touched it since. So they literally named it Bulma because it's like a bunch of capsules components. So Bulma owns Capsule Corp in Dragon Ball. That was their motivation. I don't know what nerd language you guys are talking about right now. I'm never into Japanese cartoons. <laughs> Cartoons? Oh boy! So <laughs> not so not called a cartoon? Anime? Um, sorry, whatever. Okay, okay, we kind of have to to stop here, or, or like I don't know, like a, it's gonna get ugly. I can I can see like this 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 anger vein on Abby's forehead. <laughs> this, this is a way of life, I guess. <laughs> Abby is a total weep. <laughs> okay. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Usually I pick Alan to go first, but why I already picked him to go first uh, on the podcast like earlier. So Adi, do you have any picks for us? I did not, but then I realized animes exist just a second ago. So <laughs> two months ago, I was looking for like a very, very silly anime to watch in the uh, just a background. And I found the silliest probably that I've ever watched. It's called, uh, and it'll be in the show notes, it's called Masamane Kun's Revenge. It's basically a guy who was rejected uh, as a kid by a girl. He works out, you know, becomes this like, you know, really good looking guy in high school. And his goal is to make her fall in love with him so he can reject her. That's that (laughs) entire anime. It's the silliest, uh, but it's hilarious. (laughs) So that's my pick for today. Nice. (laughs) That's I think. Might be among the weirdest picks we had yet. <laughs> Definitely up there. Uh, <laughs> Helen, what are your picks for the week? Wow, my pick. I didn't even spend some time to even think about this one. Yeah, I think, you know what? I'm going to pick Tailwind UI. Sorry to kind of cheapen out on this one. But I think if you guys are using Tailwind, really purchase this and, and look it up. There's really, really cool and good stuff in here. If you guys didn't even know about it, it's written by the guy who made Tailwind. And I think basically all the money is just kind of going back to kind of support Tailwind. So if you're using Tailwind, help out if you can and just just support it. It's not expensive. It's like 300 bucks. But I think all the components you're going to get out of there is really well worth it rather than making it up by yourself. And it kind of like takes that whole entire like um, why use Bootstrap? Why use these other kind of well-made or well-done like components, right? Is because you can use this kind of stuff. So yeah, that's that's my pick. All right, nice. My picks for the week are because we talked about uh, metaprogramming earlier, 
I looked through my past picks and I haven't seen it yet. So um, I'm going to pick Metaprogramming Elixir, which is a book by Chris McCode. I think I mentioned it before on the podcast, but I never had it as a pick. And it's like a really great book. It's only 100 pages and it definitely is completely worth your money and your time if you even remotely do anything with metaprogramming in Elixir. If you want to write some macros and you want, want, want to like get all the wisdom that Chris McCord gathered while, while creating macro, the macros and all the, 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 the shebang and, and, and Phoenix, then this is definitely worth your time and your money. Like it's a really, really good book. And also like it, it reads fairly well. Like, I mean, there are a lot of technical books out there which are insanely boring to read. But this one isn't. So yeah, that's my, my technical pick. I'm going to also go for a nerd pick, like a game I've been playing recently. And I've I've played it years ago already and finished it. But now I kind of came back to it is uh, Celeste, which is a pixel art platformer. It's very challenging. And like it's one of these games where you, you can easily play through the main story and just... Yeah, called it a day, and it was a nice little game. But it has like at every point in the game, there are like little extra challenges um, hidden. Like you can collect these strawberries, and that's completely optional. It's only for bragging rights. <laughs> but that's like well, if you're into challenging games and into, into challenging platformers, then this is definitely something you should check out. I'm really, really fond of this game. And since I mean, well, why not? Since, since you already picked an anime, I'm also going to pick an anime, Adi. Uh, and the anime I'm going to pick is something I've watched years ago but really really liked this psychopath and it's a dystopian anime playing in japan who's surprised uh, where basically the society develop a technology to evaluate the risk of somebody becoming a criminal not even like the the intention but just like the statistical risk of somebody becoming an animal becoming a criminal sorry and they basically like then like the whole system is working on like okay if somebody is like a latent criminal then they're already gonna go and come go behind locks or gonna go through like like a like a re-education program and it's following along the journey of this one main protagonist uh, who's joining the police force in japan and like kind of uncovering like what's really behind the curtain of this whole system and it's like if, i mean if you're into dystopian stories and like also like flashy visuals then this is definitely something you might want to check out i'm not sure where you can watch it right now because it's years ago i watched it and then it was on netflix but i don't think it's on netflix anymore and i thank you for for tuning in for another episode of elixir mix and we hope you listen to the next episode and the one after that and after that and after that again have a great day peeps bye-bye bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more